All right, good. So we are starting in, or not starting, we're continuing in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 10. So if you have your Bibles with you or tap there on your phones, and uh, that's where we will be. But And what we're talking about in this series of Galatians, as I've mentioned, is that the book of Galatians, as Paul is writing uh, one of the very first letters that, that we have, probably one of the first ones that he wrote to this area of Galatia, and uh, He's writing about the gospel at the core. And the first couple chapters really center on the gospel. This is a book about what the gospel is and how to not corrupt the gospel or to teach something different than the gospel, but to stay focused on the gospel. And then he'll get into application as we get into later chapters. And uh, if you think about it, if someone wanted to do harm to Christianity, if somebody wanted to do harm to the Christian faith, And let's just imagine, we don't have to imagine that there are powers and principalities that do desire harm to the Christian faith and desire our harm. And there's a few ways you could go about it. But but one tactic that has been taken here, as we see as Paul is speaking to the church in Galatia, is an attack on the authenticity of the gospel message. And so if these people could show that the gospel, as it was proclaimed by Paul, was somehow different than the gospel as it was proclaimed by, say, Peter or James or John or the original disciples and apostles, then they would drive a wedge into the authenticity of the gospel and they would destroy the unity of the apostles. And having destroyed the unity, they would make it far easier to discredit and bring down the gospel of grace. And so so that's what's going on here is there's people trying to do harm to the gospel and there's powers and principalities that are trying to do damage to the early church. And we're going to look into that this morning. And, and we might think that some of the issues that Paul talks about here with Peter and James and John are irrelevant to us today. I mean, does it really matter to us in Halliburton in 2017 that Titus was circumcised or not? I don't lose any sleep over that. Uh, that's his personal choice in the matter. And honestly, I just try not to think about it. But, you know, these are old These are kind of old, dead issues that sometimes we talk about here. We've talked a lot about the law and whether you follow the feasts or whether you're circumcised or whether you acknowledge the holy days. And this is what Paul's wrestling with. And you can read through Galatians and say, this is irrelevant. I don't don't care about these things and they don't matter to us anymore. But the the relevance will become apparent as we investigate what's at stake in the argument that Paul's engaged in. Because it's not really about the law and the feasts and the holy days and circumcision. It's really about something deeper at stake. And it is the credibility and the unity of the gospel. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, that orthodoxy matters. It's important that we be orthodox, which is just a fancy word for true to the historical gospel, true to the historical truth. Let's just, uh, I'm going to open an word of prayer before I read the scripture. Father God, We're opening up your word now. I pray that you would bless our reading of it and our understanding of it. I pray that you would uh, give us clarity, give me clarity as I speak, and us clarity by your Holy Spirit as we receive your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul continues in Galatians chapter 2. He says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation, meaning Jesus told me to, And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek, 
And yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, and what they were makes no difference to me, God doesn't show any partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine and the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so as we look at this text, starting there at at, uh, the first verse, here's what's happened. Paul has been on his missionary journeys, okay? He's been planting Gentile, non-Jewish, for the most part, churches around the Middle East and Turkey and Asia Minor for 14 years now. And everywhere he seems to go, some places more than others, what happens is people are sneaking in behind and trying to pollute the gospel with the Jewish law. And we, the fancy word we use for them is Judaizers. So Greeks, they say, have to be circumcised, even as adults. And Christians should still follow the dietary laws and they should celebrate the feasts and they should recognize the holy days of the Jewish law. And so finally, Paul, not because he's summoned, he's not called into the principal's office or anything here, but because of a vision of revelation, Paul heads all the way back to Jerusalem and he goes basically to church headquarters. Okay, And this controversy over the gospel is taking such a toll on his ministry, he's wondering if he's running in vain or he's running this race, he's doing this missionary journey and gospel proclamation without any real outcome. And so he needs to get to Jerusalem and sort this out. And I I sometimes wonder if Jesus gave Paul this vision to visit Jerusalem basically for his own encouragement, right? Having people undermine your preaching and what you've been saying for 14 years, I imagine has to get exhausting for Paul. He's out there planting churches, bringing people to Christ, sharing the gospel, leading them into the joy of the Lord, and then he's seeing his work systematically attacked after he leaves these churches, and he has to keep writing back to explain to them not to abandon the gospel that they've heard. And so this visit, as he goes to Jerusalem, is actually going to end up encouraging Paul greatly. So he takes two people with him. He takes his friend and his missionary partner Barnabas with him, and he also takes Titus. And Titus is a young Greek who he met on his first missionary trip and who's been following along with Paul. And you can sort of see what's going on here with Barnabas and Titus, what Paul is doing. Okay, Paul has two witnesses with him because, as we read in Scripture and as you might know from Jewish law, you don't do anything without two witnesses, right? Nobody brings an accusation. Nobody makes a statement without two witnesses. And so Paul brings two witnesses with him. Witness one is Barnabas, who is a fellow Jew and knows exactly what Paul is teaching and believes and follows what Paul is teaching, teaches the same gospel as a Jew. He's a Jewish version of a converted believer, a Christian. And witness number two is Titus, not a Jew, 
Okay? Titus is uncircumcised. He's an unclean Greek. He's never observed a proper Sabbath in his life, but who loves Jesus. And he loves bacon sandwiches. Okay? So Paul has both of these witnesses, right? One guy who grew up never having bacon, another guy who grew up loving bacon, a Jew and a Gentile, both who have received the same gospel, received the same salvation in Jesus Christ. And these are his two witnesses. And so Paul's witnesses are going to prove his case about the right gospel. And what's at stake here, not just the right gospel, and this is important, but the right practice that should flow out of believing the right gospel. Because that's really also what Galatians is about. It's about getting the gospel right, but then also guarding the right practices that should flow out of that right gospel. If you have the right gospel, there's things that should happen and things that shouldn't. And what Paul's doing here by bringing Titus in, it's sort of a trivial illustration maybe, but it gives us a sense of what he's doing. You can imagine that you have two tickets to a Leafs game. And you invite a friend of yours to come to this Leafs game with you, and he arrives on the day of the game, and he is dressed entirely in red and white Canadians gear, right? And so you're thinking now, at this point, whether you're going to take him actually to the Leafs game or not, and sit right behind the Leafs bench, right? And you have a few problems, and you have a few more problems if you actually take him to the game dressed that way, right? Your safety may be in jeopardy behind the bench there, and your friend may not leave the game in the same condition that he went in. Okay, so that's Titus's issue. So just let's have some proper respect for Titus. He's going into Jerusalem to have a debate with Paul about whether he should be circumcised or not. He doesn't know he's leaving the city in the same condition that he went in. And so we just give him some credit for that. But Paul's bringing Titus into Jerusalem in that situation. And the stance of the Judaizers, these people who wanted the law to still be followed, was if you are not circumcised, you can't be saved. You're not a true Christian. So the important thing to understand here is that it's not a marginal issue. This is not just a a side issue of the church. This is core to how do we practice the gospel that we've heard. What should be the outcome? How the gospel transforms our life is not a side issue. If I've heard the gospel, there are things that are therefore true. It's not marginal, it's central. And Paul is writing about all of this to the Galatian church exactly because of this issue. What the gospel says and how we rightly live out that gospel is what is at stake. And getting it wrong was ripping the church apart. They didn't have the right gospel and they didn't understand how to live rightly out of what the gospel taught. And it was tearing churches apart. It was important, it was not marginal. And so now it appears that there was at least two rounds to this debate. When, when Paul met with the church in Jerusalem, in verse 2, he meets privately with Peter, James, and John. He says, And I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. And so the result of that is that even Titus was not forced to be circumcised. So if anyone is glad that Paul won this argument, Titus is glad that Paul won the argument. But Paul didn't have to win any argument with Peter, James, and John, okay? Peter, James, and John were on his side. Paul just went and confirmed in private, hey, are we on the same page on what the gospel is? Paul already knew the answer, I think. But he finds out that they're already convinced. They get it. They understand that the right outcome of the gospel is that we're set free from the law. 
The true gospel says you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the feast. You don't have to sacrifice at the temple. You don't have to slaughter a bull when you sin against somebody. The gospel sets you free from that. So they're all in accord. But there was a second round to this debate as well. We'll see. In verse 4 it says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So here in Jerusalem too, there's false brothers who have now slipped into this conference to spy out freedom and bring them into slavery. What incredible imagery Paul uses there. And Paul is on to these guys, right? If there's not unity on the gospel and unity on the application of the gospel to our lives, then the door is open for slippery people such as these to sneak into the church and sneak into the faith and start to corrupt it and enslave people to false teaching. And that's why this is not a marginal issue. This is why this is important. Because you have to have an orthodox or a right understanding of the gospel, and you also have to have an orthodox or a right understanding of how the gospel then lives lived out in people's lives, or what we should see in people's lives. What we have to understand is it's important today is not so much this issue of circumcision or the law specifically, but the importance of unity in the proclamation and in the application of the gospel. Because if we have agreement on the gospel that we're preaching, then we should have agreement on the implications or the application of that gospel in the life of Christians. Does that make sense to you? Right? That, that we should not see two churches that are preaching the same gospel have markedly different instruction or teaching on then we, how we should behave. Right? So if, if we have different churches and they're preaching the same gospel, then we should probably be preaching and saying, that we behave out of that gospel message that as Christians we live a certain way in our marriages. And that should be roughly the same among all churches. Or this is how we live as Christians at work. Or this is how we parent. Or this is how we respond as Christians to authority. Or this is how as Christians we view money. Or this is what we consider impure. Or this is how we you know, view various aspects of the world. The same gospel should produce the same Christian practice for the most part, largely, our, our practice should be the same. It doesn't necessarily mean we're all going to vote conservative or we're all going to vote liberal or that we're all going to like the same music or things like that. But on the essentials, Paul is saying, if you believe this gospel, you can't follow these Judaizers because their gospel's got to be different than mine. And that's what we believe today. Or if you were to state it in the other direction, if two churches have fundamentally different practical applications in how they think Christians should live, how we live our life, you know, about marriage, like three wives is fine, or four wives is fine, or three husbands, or, or how we handle money. Maybe they teach that you should just get as much money as fast as you can while you're able to, you know, or how we parent, you know, just ignore your kids, they'll grow up fine, right? You shouldn't see churches that are teaching vastly different things. And if you found a church that was teaching stuff like that, you'd go, really? Can you explain your gospel to me? Because I don't get that living out of the gospel that Jesus taught. And so we should see that there's a different outcome from different gospels, and there should be the same outcome from the same gospel. And this is at the heart of what Paul's argument. How can we apostles, talking to you know James and Peter and John, how can we apostles imagine that we're sharing the same gospel as these other false people if they've arrived at totally opposite positions on where we stand in application of the law to Christians? Paul's saying we can't be. Their gospel can't be the same gospel. 
They can't be right. And so let's us, Peter, James, and John, let's us get our heads together and wrestle with the practical implications of what our gospel really means before we have our churches going off the tracks with all this other nonsense that people are teaching. And this is relevant today. It's absolutely relevant today. It has been relevant this whole past and present century. The whole era of the modern Western church, we have seen this very thing happen in churches and denominations, right? Denomination after denomination who claim to preach the same gospel of grace while they go on endorsing and affirming behaviors that stand in opposition to what Scripture teaches. And we've seen it happen. It's relevant. Paul says that that is a round peg in a square hole. That is oil and water. You can't reconcile a right gospel with wrong application. There has to be unity on the truth or orthodoxy of the gospel. It's non-negotiable. And it's not an issue of marginal significance. And so Paul goes on to say to these slippery people that were snuck in to spy out their freedom, he says, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, these people came at us, right? They, they came at us, but we didn't back down even for a minute. We were not going to allow them any idea that the gospel had any, their gospel had any sway over us at all. Because our gospel has to be preserved. The true gospel has to be preserved. And so when Paul collaborates with Peter and James and John, they had nothing to add to what Paul proclaimed. He says, and from those who seem to be influential, and what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. So Paul says, I got together with these guys, and my gospel was the same as theirs. They didn't add anything, didn't take anything away. It was, just, it was the same gospel. There was nothing new. And that sentence there, you know, we can admit, it comes across a bit arrogant. Like I said, this is one of the first letters that Paul wrote, and uh, his... You know, his edginess kind of comes out a bit in this one. And we can read that sentence, and it it does sound a little bit arrogant, right? But Paul is in Jerusalem by the direction of a revelation, and Paul is there to affirm and be encouraged that there's unity in what he and Peter and James and John preach. And so I think, you know, the way that comes across, you know, what they were makes no difference to me. Uh, I think the attitude that maybe comes across in that sentence is partly because it's an English translation, and I'm not sure that attitude would be there in the Greek. And... uh, But also, I think what Paul is expressing here is, to the Galatians, knowing who he's writing to, he's saying, you seem to be easily swayed by influential people. And so, just so you know, while you've been listening to these Judaizers and you think that they're influential, Peter, James, and John agreed with me. And so he's trying to back up his argument by saying, I don't really care about these people. You seem to care a lot about them, and they agree with me. And so if it helps you to believe the true gospel, that Peter, James, and John also affirm it, then I'll let you know that they affirm it too. So I'm just letting you know, even though God doesn't show any partiality, the big names in the church didn't influence the gospel message either. They didn't add anything to it. And so the false brothers took their shots at our gospel and I met with the apostles and I left with the same gospel that I arrived with. And in the case of the law, Titus left in the same way that he came to, which was good for Titus, right? He left the city in the same way. And that's important because we are all agreed on what the gospel is and how we live out our lives transformed by its power. In other words, the gospel set us free from the law. The gospel sets us free from sin. There is a way that we live as Christians with the true gospel. And so they were able to close ranks against people who wanted to teach a different gospel and from that, a, that, and from that different gospel a different manner of living. 
And so instead they could preserve the true gospel that Jesus had lived and died, not so that we could carry on in the same manner as our old life, whether it's either a self-righteous religiosity or whether it's a self-worshipping, self-gratification, but that he set us free from either of those old lives and were transformed by the power of the Spirit to live a brand new life, as we saw in chapter 1 last week. The other thing that I want us to notice here, and this is important for us as a church and it's going to become increasingly important as we go on to us as individuals and to your own faith. I want us to notice also here that this wasn't about Paul wanting to be proven right. Okay, Paul's concern was not that he would go into Jerusalem and he would win over these apostles and prove how awesome he was. He says, we didn't give in. We fought hard on this so that the gospel would remain with you, or your translation might say, or would be preserved for you. And so Paul is going here not because he needs to be proven right. He already knows. He's been preaching the gospel for 14 years. He's not just suddenly thinking, hey, maybe I was wrong. Okay, he knows that the gospel that he's preaching is the true gospel. And the reason that he's going is not to prove himself right or to win some sort of points in the politics of the early church. He's going, he says, so that the gospel would be preserved for you. This is a fight that we take on for you so that you have the real gospel in your hands, so that your life can be transformed and you are not misled or confused or swayed by false teaching that profits you nothing. Paul is fighting for the gospel and for a church filled with thousands upon thousands of little baby Christians or people who are seeking what the gospel has to offer them to become Christians, and he wants to make sure that they find it and that they're transformed by it. So Paul goes to Jerusalem for this conference on the behalf of the church, for the guarding of the gospel. The gospel can't be tampered with or diluted without it ceasing to be what it is and lose all its power. And this is important to us here today in Halliburton, because all down through the centuries, men and women have been martyred. They have stood against the tide of popular opinion in their culture. People have been crucified. They have been killed with the sword. They have been sawn in half. They have been burned at stakes. They have been left to starve in jails for the truth of the gospel in order to preserve the gospel for the church. And it's easy sitting in Halliburton and growing up in Canada to forget that that is what has happened in order to preserve the gospel for us as we sit here today. So the battle that Paul started and had to fight in Jerusalem, it's been going on for centuries. That there are people who want to corrupt and destroy the gospel, and people have to stand up to defend and to guard it. People were burned at the stake in England simply for translating the language of the Bible into English. Look again at your history. Pick up a book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. The Roman Catholic authorities sent out their private army to hunt and kill Protestant reformers who simply stood for the word of God and that people should have access to the word of God directly as it's written in the Bibles. The Bibles you have in your hands right now today. People were imprisoned and killed and burned for daring to translate that into English for you. Now, did these people who were burned and crucified, and killed, and jailed? Did these people do this simply so that they could be proven right? So that they could win some sort of liberal versus conservative culture war? Is that why they went to their death? No. 
These people died so that the gospel might be freely known and shared by all future generations and not twisted by false teaching or controlled by false teachers or tainted by cultural influence. And that's why this message, this, these verses of 1 to 10 in, in chapter 2 are important to us today as Christians. They're important to us today even as Lakeside Church and little old Halliburton. We have to stand for the true gospel and how the gospel transforms our lives and how we are to live in our culture and how we are to live out those lives. Our churches today that hold to that true gospel, they stand on the foundation laid by others who followed an example of Paul and who would not compromise on the gospel either in its proclamation about what it says about Jesus and what he's done for us, nor would they compromise on its application, how we should therefore live our life because of the gospel, set free because of the gospel. And as one commenter on the life of these martyrs phrased it, he said, if we don't have the same conviction, then subsequent generations will have great cause to disdain us. And I agree with that. Could you imagine if the church just got lazy and sloppy? And I'll try not to comment on whether the church has got lazy and sloppy or not. But could you imagine if we got lazy and sloppy on what the Bible says, what the gospel teaches? And we just sort of let it drift away in our generation. And we didn't really hold people to the truth of the gospel and how they are to live subsequent to their understanding and the transformational power of the gospel. And what would our kids have to hold us in esteem for as they drift farther and farther away from the truth of the Bible and say, yeah, that's fine. You can live this way. You can live that way. You can do this or do that. It doesn't matter. Gospel has no impact. And then what about their kids and their kids? Subsequent generations will have great cause to disdain us if we don't defend the gospel and how we live out that gospel. And Paul says this so clearly in one of the last letters that he ever wrote, Galatians being one of the first, one of the last letters that he ever wrote is 2 Timothy. And he's sort of a retiring general, and he's passing on his strategy to the next generation. And he says to young Timothy, this... um, this young protege of his who's going to be a, a teacher and a strong person in the, in the church. He says in 1, 13 to 14, he says, follow the pattern, that is the detailed plan of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul says, Timothy, this is how this is going to go forward, is you are going to guard what you have been taught. And if you're guarding something, you don't let anybody tamper with it, right? If you've been told to guard something, you don't let somebody come in and mess with it. And so we have to guard the gospel, and so we stand firmly to not let anybody, world or church, tamper with the gospel. And if you were to turn ahead in 2 Timothy to chapter 4, he goes on to say, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and extort with complete patience and teaching. And these two admonitions, uh, the verse 2 admonitions, are aimed at the types of elders and preachers and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and Bible study teachers that the church needs. Paul is saying to Timothy, look, you need group leaders and and teachers and Sunday school teachers and preachers and elders who are diligent in all those things that I just said, that they're reproving and rebuking and exhorting. 
with patience and teaching. We can't be careless in handling the Word of God for even a moment in the lifespan of the church because he goes on in verse 3 and he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And so Paul says to young Timothy, he says, if you're careless, people will have access to false teaching that they can then pick and choose instead of the true gospel. And because those false teachers are going to teach to suit their own passions or desires. This is, this is what this council at Jerusalem was about here in 2 Galatians, right? Or in 2 Galatians, 2 Timothy, in Galatians 2. That Paul is eager to make sure that the gospel stays pure. Because he knows that people will just pick and choose a gospel, a so-called gospel that just serves their own passions, that serves their own desires. And it's important because it's our kids who are going to be sitting under the teaching of these pastors and elders and Sunday school teachers if we don't guard the gospel. It's our grandkids who are going to be sitting under the teaching of these future church leaders. And so it's important that we guard this. A quick history lesson. What happened in the modern church age? What happened down through the decades in church history in the 18th and 19th century is that people began to doubt the truth of God's word. And when the truth of God's word was being proclaimed, they started to deny and to doubt it, and they started to conform to their culture. And when the next generation came along and began to take positions of being teachers and professors and becoming the chairs and the deans of the great European universities, they started to teach the Bible in a way that wasn't true to the gospel. And then students sat under those professors at the German and French and English seminaries and universities. And those students that sat under those professors then sat in the congregations of Germany and England and France. And they would teach Bible studies and Sunday school and write lessons. And they began to proclaim nonsense under the disguise of truth. And it's the breakdown that exactly happened that Paul anticipated 1,800 years earlier. And from the 18th and 19th century, in the 1920s, the seminary at McMaster hired L.H. Marshall, who was a European from one of the modern schools, as a professor of practical theology, who then influenced the existing professors and the future hires of professors, to the point that within a few years, in the early, mid-1920s, the seminary professors could no longer sign a statement of faith to affirm that the scripture was the inspired and inerrant word of God because of what happened in the 1900s and the 1800s. And this led to a founding of a new seminary, and it split the BCOQ denomination. They're called the CBOQ now, but they were the BCOQ then. And it split the denomination in the late 20s. And about 10 years later, so early 30s, and it was too late for the CBOQ at that time and for the seminary, L.H. Marshall ended up admitting that he was part of the modernist movement and that he saw his role at McMaster as one of championing the new theology. This is what happens when you don't guard. This is our history. This is our history within our own denomination. And so everybody's gotten way back on track since then, thanks to the intervening decades. But there were decades there. That's where the fellowship of evangelical Baptist churches came from. In the late 40s and early 50s, those Churches that separated formed the Feb with a different seminary and everything else. But this is what happens. And where did it start? With a loss of orthodoxy, a loss of unity with Scripture on the gospel in its proclamation and its practice, which could not be restored. And so that loss of unity led to a necessary separation of churches from one another. 
Because you cannot claim to be part of the same body of faith if you deny the gospel and the implications of Christian practice that come from it. And so back in Galatians, Paul says you can't be teaching the same gospel if it doesn't set a person free from the law. You can't be preaching the same gospel if it does not set you free from the bondage of your old life and into the freedom of new life in Christ Jesus. In the 20th and 21st century, Paul would point to what he said in Timothy and say, you can't be teaching the same gospel if it simply conforms itself to whatever cultural passions or appetites are the flavor of the month these days. You're not the church if you just look like the culture. The danger was there in Paul's day, and the danger is in our day. The danger is always there, and this is why we guard. And in the end, there was unity in the gospel and on practice. Paul goes on and he writes and he says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They basically shook hands, right? They extended the right hand of fellowship. They said, we're good, right? He says, only that they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And that's a really important appendix to the whole conversation that they were having about the church. Basically, what was at the root of this council in Jerusalem was a potential fracture in the church. And Paul was preaching one gospel and Peter and James possibly preaching another. Was that what was going on? Was the Jewish church fundamentally different than the Gentile church? Was there going to have to be a parting of ways over this? And so once the theological unity on the gospel was affirmed, this sort of theological doctrine discussion, it led immediately to practical unity on the needs of the church. Right? They're talking about the gospel and, and what it means. And, and basically, hey, brothers, this theological debate was critically important, and we absolutely had to have this debate and be unified on it. But the implication of that unity in the faith, it's our unity of our need for each other. That we need each other as a church. That we need to remember the poor. That we need to care for one another. You have to understand what was going on at this time is that Jerusalem was actually in a famine. This visit to uh, Jerusalem that Paul's talking about here, uh, some people think it points to the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. Other people think it points earlier to the Acts 11 famine visit, which I'm prone to agree with that this was before the, the Acts 15 Council. And so at that time, Jerusalem was actually in a famine, that there was a, a lot of poverty, there was a lot of poor, and that Paul was collecting to bring to the church. And so what we have at the end of this big theological debate, this doctrinal debate between all the church eggheads, was that there had to be unity in how we then respond in the church. Once the theological unity was affirmed, it led immediately to practical unity. The church that Jesus established was not meant to be about this church in Halliburton or that church in Toronto or another church in Nicaragua. The church that Jesus built is one church. And as one part of the church suffers, we all suffer. This is why Lakeside has a missions budget. This is why we send a portion of our budget to churches and to missionaries in developing countries. We send money in times of crisis and we serve in areas of poverty in our own community. And you should do that too. Because the practical outcome of living the gospel that the scripture teaches is that we care for each other and we care for those in need. And so we set aside a portion of our money for the church and to serve people in areas of poverty, to stand together on the gospel as one church. 
And so now you may be thinking to yourself, you know, your title, Paul, it says orthodoxy is important. And, you know, you may be thinking after such a well-reasoned exegesis of Scripture and such a clear sermon, you may be thinking that you even believe me after all of that. You know, so you concede the point. It does matter. But Paul, it seems that it's in the domain of church leaders. You know, I get it that the Apostle Paul and that Peter and James and John, you know, they had to have these discussions. And maybe you and the elders or you go to some annual meeting and you have these talks with other church leaders. And that's important. The seminary professors need to worry about these things. But what does orthodoxy have to do with me? Well, as I've touched on, it has everything to do with you. Every one of us has to know our scripture. Every one of us has to know the Bible and to know the gospel for its preservation within the church. If you don't know the gospel, first of all, you're missing out on its transforming power. But if you don't know the gospel, then you won't know when you hear something different. You'll pick up a Joel Osteen book or you'll watch Oprah and you'll think, that sounds good. I like that. But if you know the gospel, if you have an orthodox understanding of scripture, if you know what the gospel says, then when you turn on Oprah and she starts talking, you realize that's not right. Or when you read something or see a movie, you think, it says it's a Christian movie, but I'm not sure that sits well with me. We all have to know the gospel in order to guard it and preserve it so that we know the counterfeits when we see them. And also, if you don't know the gospel and you don't know how to live out your life from the gospel, how do you expect your children to? How is the gospel going to pass on to the next generation if we don't know it and we don't live it? If you make it your goal to know the gospel and to live out the life that the gospel calls you to, even if it means rejecting really powerful cultural voices and really powerful cultural forces that want to conform you, but if you dig in and guard the gospel and resist the passions and the desires of the culture to bend you a certain way, then you will personally have much to benefit. You will benefit in freedom from bondage to sin and you will benefit in increasing joy and in purpose and in relationship to Jesus and so much more personally. And as a church, every gospel antibody that we have out there in the seats is an inoculation against false gospels that would attempt to distract and deceive and to enslave us and to rob us of our salvation and our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. And so the gospel and its orthodoxy is not just important to me and it's not just important to the elders and it's not just important to the seminary professors. Knowing the gospel and staying true to it is important for all of us. Orthodoxy matters. The gospel in content and in practice is not a marginal issue. It's core, even and especially to you. And so know that the gospel is one of freedom. More people than you can count or will ever know have given their lives to preserve the gospel for us. And so we need to know it and apply it in our own lives and guard it as a church and so that we are a church that's proclaiming the gospel and we are a church that are living out lives that are true to what the gospel would teach us and how we live as Christians. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the wisdom and the fearlessness of the early apostles who stood their ground against culture and stood their ground against voices that would conform them. They stood for what the gospel is and how it should transform lives. And, and later on, we're going to see in Galatians, you know, 
Paul puts an exclamation point on this with his confrontation of Peter, who wasn't going to eat with the Gentiles because he was embarrassed about what the Jews might think. And Lord, that's, that's exactly the point, that the gospel has implications in our lives, that we can't just bend with culture and make compromises wherever we feel like making compromises because it pleases us. Not and say that we still tr- follow the true gospel. And so, Father, as a church and as individuals, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, the clarity, the discipline to know your word, to know the Bible, cover to cover, inside and out, to know your gospel, and to know, most importantly, how it transforms us and how we should see that transformation and it makes us different than what everybody else is saying in culture. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for the churches here in Halliburton that we would continue to minister a true gospel and we would continue to stand for and live out a culture that stands opposed to things that would try to conform us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.